Life Audio. You're listening to Therapy and Theology, and I'm your host, Carly Merclear. This podcast is a space where we explore popular topics and questions related to the convergence of faith, feelings, spiritual formation, and more. My prayer is that through these conversations, we will grow in our awareness of who we are as beloved children of God, learn to acknowledge our needs and emotions with curiosity and compassion, and rediscover the purpose and power of our unique stories through the lens of the gospel. As a licensed therapist and ministry leader, I want to give voice to the many questions we face while cultivating a clearer view of how our faith informs our healing journey. I don't have all the answers, but I am committed to going deeper and walking together. So whether you've been to therapy or know exactly what you believe when it comes to theology, I want to invite you to join this journey as we fearlessly name the complexities of our present reality and press into the hope of the gospel story. So are you ready? Let's jump into today's question and begin this journey together. Hello, hello, Quinice Petway here, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. Are you someone who loves to take a deep dive into God's word, one verse at a time to explore his will for your life and desire to draw closer to him? If that sounds like you, I'd love to invite you to head over to lifeaudio.com and search Your Daily Bible Verse to tune in and subscribe for daily inspiration, life application, and spiritual transformation through the in-depth exploration of God's Word. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Therapy and Theology. I'm excited to be finishing our deconstruction series today. And I just want to say that this season of the podcast has been such a blessing to me. And I really pray that as we journey together, we've been able to know who we are in light of who God is and be grounded in that truth. Today, I want to talk about four Christian cliches and what the Bible actually says about them. Because I don't know about you, but I had asked some of you from the, my, my community about what are the common Christian comments that produce shame. And I got a lot of feedback. And one of the things that I think oftentimes is the case is that there seems to be a lot of comments that Christians tend to make that are really invalidating and not intentionally. I truly believe it's not intentional. But I also know that when said to someone who is in pain or hurting or just in just a season of deconstruction or disorientation, the things that we say can be really wounding. And I wonder too, to our culture who doesn't understand or know God, if it can be even more damaging to the pursuit of faith. And so this is both for those maybe that have been wounded by these kind of comments 
and also to those who maybe have accidentally said something like this and not knowing that it could be hurtful or judgmental. And so let's dive right in. The first of the four is love the sinner, hate the sin. Now, let's just break this down for a second because I think oftentimes we have these comments and we're like, oh yeah, that's scriptural. And this statement is actually never seen in scripture in its entirety, right? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Yet, right, there are verses that we could pull to contextualize this concept. So some verses that people have pulled on to relate to this statement are first, love the sinner. So obviously this is a command in scripture, right? To love our neighbor as ourself and to love one another as God has loved us, right? And then we also look at how God has loved us. It says like, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us because he loved us, right? First John, Romans 8, Romans 5, all of these passages talk about how it's actually a command both for the believer to emulate God, right? To be imitators of God's love to those around us. And so, yes, we are called to love each other. Now, how do we feel about being labeled a sinner? I think that is where maybe this language kind of starts shifting. Are we sinners? Yes. Do we need to be reminded and labeled as a sinner? I think that can be hurtful, right? Because in scripture, we also see that we are raised anew, right? We are to walk in freedom. And so I think oftentimes we get stuck in Genesis 3 language where we're really focused on the sinner aspect of our nature. And in a lot of ways, I think this almost perpetuates shame, right? To be labeled as this and not to be called into freedom that we are given in Christ. And so we are to love one another. Yes. But I wonder if maybe we could start changing the language to just loving one another instead of pointing out that we are sinners. I don't know how productive that is for anybody. In addition to that, this is where the statement gets a little bit more judgmental and harsh, right? When we say, hate the sin. Okay. Is that a biblical statement? Sure. Like we could look up passages about hating sin, Psalm 5, Ezekiel 33, 11. So there's, there's passages that talk about how God hates sin. Well, that makes sense because sin is in its definition, separation, right? It is this idea of unrighteousness, something that goes against who God is in his nature. And so, it also goes against our divine nature as well. And so the idea here is, yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I hate separation and disconnection, both from God and from people I love. And so I can connect with that statement. And yet I wonder if in many ways people feel like this is a neatly packaged quip to kind of throw out to people. I think it's used a lot in controversial topics with people that we feel like are not making moral decisions correctly. Yet, I don't know how often we use it in deep relationship. And that's even more frightening to me, right? Like, when are we saying this? And if we're saying it about people we don't even know, I think that's really harmful because one, they might not even be a believer. And two, who are we to say? I think this is where we have to kind of deconstruct this narrative because this statement, right? Uh, especially the second part, but I think both can be seen as as shame-inducing, is that we're really focused on other people, right? Like, I'm going to love the sinner. I'm also categorizing them by their sin, which Christ has now conquered. And then in addition to that, we're also then saying, and I'm going to hate your sin. We're really focused on other people's. You know, we were told in scripture, right, to to not 
judge one another, right? That is not our job. And I think that, you know, there's a place for calling our brothers and sisters up in faith. Yes, absolutely. That is also a scriptural reference. But we also are called to bear one another's burdens. And I was just talking to my brother about this the other day, and we were we were just kind of thinking about the idea of how easy it is to just shame people or to acknowledge their sin as like a problem, but yet how willing are we to walk in it with them? You know, and I think that this particular statement really feels like an elevation of self in the sense that I'm going to love the sinners and I'm going to hate their sin. And yeah, it's like, hey, maybe we need to start with turning that inward. I need to learn to love who God has created me to be, right? Love others as I love myself. And I need to learn how to understand and fight against my own sin and my own way of maybe judgment or self-righteousness, et cetera. And so I think this particular phrase, in addition to kind of pointing out others' faults and creating a sense of self-righteousness, also lacks self-awareness. You know, we need to start with ourselves and learn that as we are acknowledging our chosenness and blessedness, that we can then honor and and share with other people their chosenness and blessedness, right? To love one another as God has loved us and to walk alongside each other, bearing each other's burdens. So in addition to this particular cliche, I want to talk about one that really gets me. It's truth is love. Have you heard this one? Again, I think this becomes a very controversial statement. We have a lot of language around love is love and sexuality. And so people throw this statement out a lot saying truth is love. We just have to speak the truth. Now, is this scriptural? Well, yes, right? Truth is love and love is truth, right? Like to love one another, that love covers a multitude of sin. I think we miss the boat here when we utilize truth in a way that I'm just being truthful. I'm going to say whatever I want to say. Maybe I'm going to point out your sin and tell you you're wrong. And yet if the motivation is not love, in the sense that if it's not done in humility and love and gentleness as the fruit of the Spirit gives us, then I I don't think it's love and truth cannot be done without love. So it's interesting because this kind of plays off the first one, right? Ephesians 4 talks all about bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so one of the things that I think of when I think about walking in love and bearing with one another is that I am called to speak truth to my friends, to speak truth to my family, to speak truth to the world. And if I miss using the language of love, it is nothing but clanging symbols, right? And so truth is not about one, being right, two, pointing out other sins, three, picketing for a political cause or changing people's political or religious views. Truth is the gospel message. You are beloved, you are invited, and you are, you can be healed. Love aims at truth and shapes how we speak the truth. I think this is such an important thing to recognize that maybe we need to shift this statement a little bit, that love is truth, right? Me loving one another, bridging the gap, moving towards people that maybe have very different views than me. 
You know, I don't think we're ever going to win an argument or change someone's belief by another belief. I've said this so many times. Just need to believe this. Is this right? That's not going to work, right? It's about the experience of being loved and seen. And does that mean we're going to agree with everybody on everything always? Absolutely not, right? I don't think we can even have that as an expectation. But I wonder if we might be missing it especially with those who are not identifying as a child of God, right? This this becomes an unloving way to speak truth. We see this in 1 Timothy 1, where he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience with sincere faith. King, truth, and love, right? If we are called to love one another as Christ has loved us and speak truth to one another in love, right? A love that shapes the way we talk to one another, then I think we can also acknowledge that there are unloving ways to speak truth. And this is important for us, especially as believers, to recognize that when we are so focused on the letter of the law, like I've talked about before, rather than the spirit of the law, we can lose our credibility, especially with those who do not know Jesus. This, this is my skyship dreamer. My cargo is stories, and our destination, dreams. With Abide Sleep Stories for Kids, you can help your children fall asleep fast and learn about God. To find these kids' bedtime stories, go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Abide Stories for Kids. You can also download the Abide app for more biblical meditations at abide.com. You know, I think of the many passages of scripture in the gospels where, you know, Jesus was almost shamed for spending time with those who were sinners. And, and that's such a Pharisee response, right? Like, how could you? And I wonder if sometimes we, we do the same in the actuality that we're not willing to maybe sit down and be patient and kind and say, I want to understand where you're coming from. Maybe that's truth being exemplified in a loving response to, I don't maybe agree with you, but I'm curious. I, I want to understand how you got to where you are. I think of First John 4 and how there is such a powerful example of what it means to walk in truth and walk in love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and He, his love is perfected in us. I found this quote the other day and I thought it was so powerful. It says this, truth without love is brutality and love without truth is hypocrisy. And I think this comes straight out of the heart of 1 Corinthians 13. And so as we learn to speak the truth, yes, as love, in love, for love. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries of knowledge, and if I have all the faith so as to move mountains but not love, I am nothing. And then in verse 4, it says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So may this be our prayer, right? As we are to be image bearers, truth sharers, that we do it in a way of love. Okay, let's move on to number three. God won't give you more than you can handle. Now, this is an actual scripture verse. It comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But if you look at the context of this passage, Paul is speaking specifically about the concept of temptation, right? And this can be a whole nother conversation for another time. But the idea and the theme of this passage is about the fact that God is always with us and the spirit is strong in us to be able to give us a way of escape. But I think this passage can be twisted oftentimes in use of grief or sadness or pain or disappointment. You know, when we're going through a fiery trial, the last thing we need someone to say is, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not helpful, right? (laughs) It's just not. And it may be, it's in some ways trying to be an empowerment statement. I, I always think and try, try to believe that these statements that people use are for an, an attempt at support or empowerment. And yet, I think we have to be careful with what and how we're saying this. I do believe that God can empower and will empower us to endure, right? And I also believe in the the evidences and the inheritance of God's grace, not just as a undeserved favor, but also as an ability to withstand difficulty. Yet I wonder if our phrasing feels invalidating. If we're believing that God won't give us more than we can handle, and yet we feel completely overwhelmed and unable to move through whatever the grief or circumstances or crisis may be, then we start invalidating our pain. Then we start shaming our pain, or we feel shamed by others in our pain. We feel like maybe we can't even talk about it because we're not being quote unquote a good Christian or not accessing God's spirit, right? All of these things can become cognitive distortions of a statement like this. And so to be able to kind of lean in and say, does this negate grief? Does this negate depression? Does this, is this a belief that if I'm having temptation in my life that I should just be able to handle it well? I don't know if that's necessarily the case. You know, when I look at scripture and I we go back in the scripture and say, okay, what does this actually mean, right? I do believe that we have a co-heir of Christ and a, a high priest that can sympathize with our weakness. And I don't think that denies our suffering. And so I wonder if we could shift this statement to something that is a little bit more embodied to reflect how Jesus responded to his own suffering, right? When we look back to even the abandonment that Jesus faced right on the cross. I wonder too, if it's more about recognizing God's presence in our pain or in our struggle, rather than trying to get us out of it in the moment, right? Like, oh, don't worry about it. Well, that's not ever really helpful for anybody, right? One of the passages that I think I keep going back to time and time again is in Psalm 23. And This is a passage that has helped me through so many seasons of disorientation because it validates the valley and also comforts my need for felt safety. It doesn't mean that 
we are going to feel victorious all the time in our lives. You know, I think grief and pain have a way of shaping us like nothing else. But I think in in so doing, we can look back to Psalm 23 or passages like this and recognize that God is in it with us and grieves alongside us. And so it's not to negate it as much as it is to hold hope that even this, whatever the this is in our lives, even this, God is in and working through. Now, that brings us to our final and fourth point. I oftentimes hear people talk about the passage of scripture, and this is maybe a two for one, but the passage of scripture that God works all things together for those who love him. This Romans 8 passage, again, I think can really damage our image of God and our belief in our spiritual formation. Because if we say that, like, oh, just know that God, you know, God's going to work it for good. Here's the two challenges I think I have with that. Is it true? Yes. But we are defining goodness so differently than this passage did. Now, when we say, oh, it's supposed to be good, or I think we relate this probably to passages like James 1, where we talk about counting it all joy, right? You know, God's going to make it for good. You can count this suffering joy. Well, we need to go back and understand, one, how that can be interpreted as invalidating of the experience, and two, what the passage actually means. So when we read a passage that says, you know, God works all things together for good as according to his purpose, right? Fashioning us to, to be conformed to the image of Christ. I wonder if we're missing the context of this passage, because if you go back to Romans 8 and read it over and over again, there's this interesting word that is repeated over and over. It's this word groaning. And I think it's so fascinating that this coexistence can happen, right? That in Christ, right? Because there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ and we have a heavenly inheritance and a love that is steadfast and unchanging, that in the depths of our groaning, our divine nature desiring heaven, we can also coexistingly hold to the hope in the midst of suffering and pain. And this is not negating it. But I wonder if maybe our idea of good is very different from God's. You know, I think of parents who lovingly don't let their kids stay up all night or lovingly don't let them eat all of the sugar in the world or lovingly keep them in their car seat buckled up safe. And as a child, right, I think we can attest to the fact that the limitations of our family systems were frustrating. We we maybe were sad or hurt or angry. And I think this relates to my process with God sometimes that when challenges come when groaning is my soul's prayer and then I have to trust in the Holy Spirit to pray beyond what I can even say that God's goodness that his faithfulness his character will not let this go to waste right and that goodness shapes me is it feel good no for sure not right and I know that God in his goodness will not let it go to waste And so this is my interpretation, and maybe there's others, but I wonder if we can allow that passage to sit differently with us and maybe not quote it at people, but maybe we utilize it as an anchor point of grieving with each other, right? I I think it goes back to this reiterating theme of bearing with one another. 
You know, it's easy to say, hey, God is going to use this for your good because he's faithful. And, you know, this is hard and I'm grieving with you and I cannot wait to see what God is going to do in this. Because if we are experiencing death, life is coming, right? Resurrection comes after death. And so it can hold so much more weight if we use it as an anchor rather than an answer to a complex coexisting experience. You know, it's interesting. I also have done a lot of studying on James 1 because this count it all joy passage also really has been difficult for me in certain seasons of my life. And people have quoted it to me when I've been sad or upset. And it just has felt, again, pretty invalidating. And I'm wondering if maybe we just don't know the definition of joy. And for me, this was life-changing. When I recognized that the passage of scripture was not telling me to just be like, hey, suffering's great. I shouldn't be sad, right? Because I can dismiss all of our emotional experience. But that counting something as joy is not necessarily being happy about it. It is about acknowledging the awareness of God's grace. And that is hard. That is not an easy statement, but it is a powerful experience of recognizing that even in the worst aspects of my suffering on this earth, that is momentary, that is not eternal. Even in those deepest moments, I can look back to the cross and have evidence of grace. Right. It's again, it's this idea of an anchor point. It's this idea of what is grace right now for me. Right. Maybe the grace is feeling the sun on our face. Maybe God's grace is allowing you to take a nap. Or maybe God's grace is evidence of provision in difficult times. But I wonder if it can shift our focus away from this invalidation of our experience of suffering and into the intentionality of seeking out. God being revealed in it and through it. And in that, we can trust in the slow work of God and know that this pain that we experience is real and deep and challenging and it's not going to be wasted. I hope that this rant of mine today has been helpful for you. I truly believe that the Bible has so much to say that is life-giving gospel to each one of us. We are beloved and we are invited and we can be healed through the power and spirit of Christ. And this healing is a daily process. And so I invite you into that. If this is a first time episode for you, or if you've been following for a while and part of the community, please join my email list. Check out my resources that I offer at the end of each show notes and reach out, connect. I would love to hear more about your story and how we can walk alongside each other, asking questions and staying curious. And so until next time, friends, I hope you have a wonderful summer and I look forward to continuing to walking out this journey with you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Therapy and Theology. If you have a question or topic you would like discussed on a future episode, please feel free to email me or drop it in the comments. Also, don't forget to subscribe to have each week's episode instantly downloaded to your podcasts and see the show notes for resources mentioned in this episode. To access more content and join my monthly email list for the latest updates and info, visit my website at carlymarcoyer.com.
Do you ever hear sayings make their way through the culture and the church that seem nice in theory, but are actually theologically problematic? My name is Shara Donahue, and I'm the host of The Bible Never Said That, a podcast where we examine these popular sayings under the lens of biblical truth. We cover sayings like, God won't give you more than you can handle, time heals all wounds, and follow your heart. We also spend time exploring how people use Bible verses out of context. If you want to grow in discernment and truth, join us and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.